coming up on Venture Voice. So, it, you know, good companies are still going to get funded. So I think it's just more important than ever to build a good company. And the macro economy has very little to do with how your startup's going to do. If you build a great company, it doesn't matter when you build it. It's going to work. Welcome to Venture Voice. This is Greg Gallant. I'm really excited to revisit my interview with David Cohen, the co-founder of Techstars. This was recorded in my tiny walk-up New York City apartment all the way back in 2008. Uh, This was soon after Techstars itself was founded. Techstars was only founded a couple years earlier in 2006. And when I was originally connected with David, he was actually already a fan of Venture Voice, my podcast, back when Venture Voice was pretty much the only podcast out there interviewing entrepreneurs. So it was really kind of fun and full circle to bring Dave onto the podcast. Not sure what he thought of the state of my New York City apartment, but it was a uh, really fun interview to do with him. Back then, Techstars only had a couple of exits was only running in one city. But since then, Techstars has exploded. I'm sure you've heard of it. They've funded over 2,600 companies that have collectively gone on to raise $14.5 billion, billion with a B, and have created a collective market cap of more than $44 billion. David has also gone on to become a prolific first-round angel investor in 17 unicorns, including Uber, Twilio, and DigitalOcean. On a personal note, I just want to say David has since become a friend, super nice guy, mega connector, mentor when needed. He He's just very generous with his time and it has been a real kind of gem of a connection that's come out of doing this podcast for me and starting this podcast all the way back in 2005. So again, really excited to revisit this interview with David. Enjoy. David, welcome to Venture Voice. Thanks. Good to be here. Tell me about how you became an entrepreneur. Sure. Um, Right out of college, I had one job interview. I've only ever actually had one and got that job somehow magically. It happened to be in um, the software business around public safety software. So I worked there a few years and like a lot of entrepreneurs decided I didn't want to work for anybody anymore. So I started a company in, in the similar space, uh, public safety software, and it went from there. So you started a company in public safety software. Tell me about you know what it was and what happened with it. Yeah, that company was called Pinpoint Technologies. I had two partners, co-founders. And what was your role? I was the CTO, uh, basically the head geek. Read a lot of the original code until we got too big and he didn't want me doing that anymore. But that company made software that was used by ambulance companies, primarily emergency medical services. It was installed when I left in 1999 in about four or 500 cities. So it did pretty well. And we sold the company in 99 to Zoll Medical Corporation out of Boston. And they've now renamed the company to Zoll Data Systems. It's a couple hundred employees and still doing pretty well. Great. So after you got through that experience, what were you kind of thinking? Were you thinking, I want to do this again? I can't wait. Or, oh, man, that's such a pain. I got to go do something uh, easier. Well, I had to stay around for a little bit as part of the deal, the acquisition deal, but not too long. And took a little break and did a little traveling. And that's when I first started playing around with angel investing. 
But yeah, I pretty much got the itch right away to go do something else and took a very, in retrospect, a very wrongheaded view at that time and decided to go do something that was completely different from anything I'd ever done before. So I wanted to learn new stuff. That was my motivation. So I started another company in the mobile social networking space using different technologies, sort of in a consumer world instead of an enterprise software world. I just really wanted to do everything differently. That turned out to be a pretty big mistake. The company didn't do too well, although we returned a lot of the angel investment that we got, but learned a lot from that failure, as I think entrepreneurs always do from failures. So tell me about the back up to when you got into angel investing. I think it's kind of a a mystery to a lot of people, maybe even more so than venture, because there's kind of less written about it and less kind of formal process around it. What was the first angel deal you did? Uh, it was a small company in Boulder that no one's ever heard of. And uh, I met the entrepreneur. She was full of energy and just, you know, it was exciting to be around her. It reminded me of, you know, when our company was three people, that first company had now grown up and was a bureaucratic large company with, you know, 150 people or whatever. And sort of just longed for that interaction with very early stage companies. I mean, to me, the first year of every company I've done has always been the most fun. And so, It wasn't so much about making money. It was about here's someone that I can help a little bit, be a little bit involved in the business and exercise my brain and think about it and sort of live vicariously through her business. And that was so much fun. I started doing more of it. So tell me, like when you did that deal, like you sit down with the entrepreneur and you both say, okay, you want to make the investment. How do you structure it? The first deal I ever did, and I would definitely recommend this to new angel investors, you know, was a deal that I jumped into that was already, you know, in progress. So I was joining a group of investors where there was already a lead. I think that's a good way to do your first deal, just sort of tag along and don't try to set all the rules and follow the crowd a little bit because your first deal as an angel investor is going to be about learning anyway. You know, I had no idea what a term sheet was or because I had never raised money. My first business was completely bootstrapped. We invested $100 as founders and that was it. So this was all new to me and I had to figure it out. And we went through and did the exercise of signing the term sheets and signing the, you know, subscription agreements and so on. And I think you should look at your first angel deal that way if you're going to get into it just as a learning experience. So, you know, later on, I would begin to lead deals and structure them myself based on that experience. So tell me like with that deal or like when you were doing these deals early on, like how does it typically work for like that first angel round? Like what do you value the company at? How much money comes in at a time? Yeah, most of the angel deals that I'm involved in, at least in Colorado, I think the market's a little different everywhere, but you know, probably more or less the same. You know, it's a company that's raising somewhere between five hundred thousand and a million dollars. Uh, typically, the valuations are running, you know, one and a half to three and a half million pre-money, meaning that you know that's before the money that goes in in terms of valuation. But you know, it. There's no science to it. It's simply a, the valuation is simply a number that the investor can agree to and the entrepreneur can agree to. Makes sense. And then how much does each uh, angel usually put in on their own? Anywhere from $25,000 to $100,000 is pretty typical. When I f- first started, I was doing about $50,000 uh, generally in the first you know seed round. So tell me about the first few deals that you did. What was your experience like? Well, it sounds like you had fun. You know, did you make any money? Uh, ultimately, uh, my Did your accountant yell at you? <laughs> uh, my, my money manager yelled at me. The accountant doesn't care. They just you pay their bill and they're happy. 
you know, the, the first few deals, you know, I think a couple of them didn't work very well. I think one of them was a money back deal. I'd say if you looked at the first three deals, they probably lost money. And I think one thing that a lot of people probably don't know is most angel investors won't make money. Uh, it's like most VCs. I think, you know, 70, 80%, you know, actually aren't going to do very well. And I think it's probably even more pronounced with angel investors in general. And did you know that getting into it? Oh, I had no idea. You know, there were so many things. It's like being a first time entrepreneur. You just don't know. You, you get into it and you learn. I, you know, for example, you know, I was putting $50,000 in the first round. I little did I know that they were probably going to need a double down round. And then you, you know, in order to not be diluted, you need to, you know, play in the VC round if there is one. So, you know, you, you go into a deal and you, you're not reserving capital and then you learn, okay, I need to reserve capital for this company as it grows in order to maintain my, my stake in it. So there's just, there's a million things like anything that you learn as you get into it. And that's an expensive lesson, right? It can be. It can be. <laughs> So how did that kind of evolve for you? Like, what do you get better at? Do you think you got better at picking companies or helping companies or change your criteria? Like, how'd that evolve? Well, I, I started focusing on the deal flow and, you know, I wanted to see more things. And I wanted to also start investing outside of Colorado because obviously, you know, you can get access to better deals, Silicon Valley or New York or elsewhere. So I really focused on my network. I started blogging uh, back then and covering companies that were in Colorado and the scene there a little bit. It's, uh, a lot of people said, you know, it's a little mini tech crunch for mostly Boulder, Colorado. And I became known as, you know, sort of visible as an angel investor, which no one in Colorado other than perhaps Brad Feld at the time had really done very effectively. There were angel groups, but there weren't sort of leaders in the community saying, I'm, I'm an angel investor. Feel free to send me your stuff. I'm sort of waving my arms around and not hiding. A lot of angel investors at the time weren't, weren't very visible. So you know, started going to more events, meeting more angel investors, looking for ways to share deal flow and becoming visible. So as I did that, you know, obviously I was getting more deals. I started to see, you know, hundreds of deals a year and, you know, I think started a pattern of investing in three to five of those a year, built up a portfolio of maybe, you know, 15 companies or so. But yeah, for me, the the whole experience was somewhat dissatisfying. It was interesting in that I got to play around with these companies early on, but I couldn't really get hands on and help them. Traditional angel investing is really about putting money in and then sort of reacting, you know, for requests for help, opening up your Rolodex and doing what you can versus really getting involved in the early stage. And that ultimately is what led me to the Techstars model a few years later. Cool. So just to contrast before we get into Techstars, like when you were doing your angel deals, what stage was a company generally at? Did they have a product? Did they have revenue? Most of them were, you know, the ones that I gravitated towards were, you know, two people and a dog and an idea, you know, in a small garage somewhere, apartment. That was how it was for us when we started, you know, lean and mean and very hungry, very energetic with a inter interesting idea and some talented people. And that's the stage that I've always liked to get involved in. Some of the deals I was doing were a little bit later stage. I, the latest stage deal I would do would be a company with a few hundred thousand dollars in annual revenue. <laughs> yeah, I just never saw stuff that was passed. So certainly pre-revenue was the norm. Yeah, so at least you couldn't use that too early as an excuse not to invest, right? No. So tell me kind of, you were doing this angel investing. You were still kind of active looking in entrepreneurial ventures. Where did the idea for Techstars kind of spark and where were you personally at the time? 
Yeah. So I had, I had then, you know, I mentioned the mobile social networking company that we did that didn't work. I did another one, um, which was a very short lived company because it sold very quickly uh, called Earfeeder. So I'd been investing while I was starting new companies as well. I decided to really, after that third company I did, to really focus my energies on, you know, becoming a better angel investor and trying to make money or at least not lose money while having fun, you know, doing just that. And, you know, Y Combinator had just started in Boston. Um, they had just done their first summer program. Charles Rivers Ventures had done the quick start program. It was very new. And the trend seemed to be, you know, put less money in upfront and spend more time early on with promising entrepreneurs and get a lot of deal flow and pick the best stuff. And that made a lot of sense to me based on my experiences with my own angel investments. So I really just came up with the model based largely on, on those few things that were happening. I wanted to do it in Boulder, so I went and uh, pitched the man in Boulder, Brad Feld, who at the time was with Mobius Venture Capital, which is uh, he's got a new fund now called the Foundry Group, Jared Polis and David Brown, who are my other two partners, and raised a little bit of money, not very much because it doesn't take much, and kicked it off in 2006. How much money did you raise? That first year, it was less than a quarter million dollars. So we were able to fund 10 companies. We had some office space donated to us. And, you know, there wasn't really no overhead because I wasn't taking a salary. I was just doing it for the equity. And the mentors who chipped in all did it, you know, pro bono because they wanted to help improve the community locally and to be involved in something fun like this. So, you know, we've been able to do a whole lot with very little money. Uh, so you can get one of these things started for less money than the angel round for most companies. Yeah, you see now, now they're starting up for, you know, what, $20,000 to fund five companies I saw the other day. Yeah, you know, yeah. $3,000 at a clip. So, uh, you know, someone's even gone micro on that. Yeah, you, you can. I mean, as long as you have, you know, people who are willing to sort of do it for the equity and you don't have a lot of expense in people, that, that's how we did it. Yeah, and going through kind of your thought process, we saw on your blog that uh, you were thinking about being the CTO of some other startups instead of doing, uh, or at the same time as doing Techstars? Yeah, there was a point, uh, you know, I guess right when I started Techstars, in my head I was going through, should I go do another startup, join someone, become a founder or CTO of a brand new company? And I had some really interesting opportunities to do that. Or should I follow my heart and go to this thing that, you know, is calling me, which was Techstars? Ultimately, I chose Techstars. I think that maybe the blog post you're, you're thinking about is the one that I wrote recently about there'll be plenty of time for that later. <laughs> That's a line I hear a lot. Young entrepreneurs are told, you know, by people that are close to them or some advisors, you know, you can start a company later, save some money, get going. I think that's a big fallacy that, you know, I think the earlier, the better. If you're passionate about starting a company, go do it now. It's only going to get harder as you get older and you have more responsibilities and, you know, a spouse and a mortgage payment. And, you know, just out of college, you're used to living on very little money. You're sort of used to, you know, going all, all night and working on things. And, you know, that's what a startup's about. So tell me, so you started Techstars and uh, with less than a quarter of a million dollars. So to kind of, you know, put it into perspective compared to a small venture funds, a hundred million. So here you are, this tiny little fund. What's the pitch going out to entrepreneurs who you want to fund? Well, yeah, I think Techstars is not about, you know, the money. If you're doing Techstars to get ten or $15,000 and you're looking at it for the wrong reason, it's really about the mentorship that we can provide, the instant network, the access to funding. You know, we like to be viewed as a co-founder. 
And I think Techstars takes common stock in exchange for the program. Literally, you know, the deal that we have is we look just like a founder in terms of the agreements with no rights to invest further, no rights to control the company in any way. And that's very intentional because in the early stages of company, it's really about who can you bring to the table as a team in order to make your startup credible and to make some interesting progress early on. So the pitch is, if you're doing a startup, would you exchange a little bit of equity for the sort of experience that our list of mentors brings to the table, the access to capital, the connections, the Rolodex that they have? If you think of it that way, as sort of adding a co-founder, it's a no-brainer. And that's how we like to present it. And how much equity do you take? In the past, it's been 5%. This year, we've moved it to 6%. So it's a flat, common stock equity stake. And again, it's founder stock with you know no special rights. So anything that happens to the founders is going to happen to Techstars. Now, we're not a fund, as you point out, is very small. We're not directly investing in the Series A or the seed round of the company. However, many people around the program have their own funds. Some are venture capitalists. I have my own fund. You know, a great example of that, Jeff Clavier, who's one of our mentors, you know, ended up investing in, in a company from 2008 called Foodsy. So that's the typical path is the people around the program are sort of a built-in seed round for companies that are interesting. And who exactly provided the capital for it? Was it all private investors or any institutional? For Techstars, it's just the four of us. It's, uh, you know, Brad Feld, myself, Jared Polis, and David Brown. And how do you decide on 5%? You know, why not 2.5%? Why not 10%? It felt right, and it's proven out that it's about right. I think, you know, one or two percent, especially after the seed round happens, dilutes us out so much that it's not as interesting for us, you know, in the long run. Whereas I think 10 percent, although I feel the program is certainly worth that, and most of the entrepreneurs who go through the program will tell you the same thing. They feel like they would have given more equity for the value. It just felt like about the right place. And why push it up to six? One of the things that we're doing this year that's new is we figured out a way to incent the mentors who are involved in the program. We have about 50 mentors from all over the country, folks like Matt Mullenweg, Jeff Clavier that I mentioned earlier, Dick Coslo, Howard Lindzen, a long list that you can see on the website. And in the past, they really had no stake in these companies. So what we're doing is we've taken you know, that extra point and we're allocating it to those mentors that help those companies which I think will create more long-term engagement. It's something we're going to try this year. We, we haven't had a, any particular problem with that, but just as a way of sort of saying thanks to the mentors. And we're also offering a little more funding to balance that. So it's not just a take thing. Now, when the program was first getting started in programs like this, a lot of people were criticizing them saying, you know, look, the valuation to take 5% for or give up 5% for 10, 15K is far less than like the angel rounds you described. So if you're a competent entrepreneur, you know, you should be able to raise at a 1.5 to 3 pre, or, you know, if you're incompetent, then have fun. What's your kind of defense for that? You know, what's the pitch to, you know, strong young entrepreneurs as to why they should do this deal at a relatively low valuation for what a deal is? Well, I think again, it goes back to the value being in the mentorship and the network and the access to capital, not, you know, if you look at it from a monetary perspective, it makes almost no sense for most entrepreneurs. And I think that's where the noise comes from. You know, it's from people who are hearing about the program and not really looking into it. Or in some cases, it might be from entrepreneurs who have done a few things and already have a very large network. You know, I think I would challenge people to take a closer look and really think about what is the value of having People like these mentors like Brad Feld and, and Jeff Clavier and Matt Mullenweg, people who you could really normally never get their attention. 
even in five or 10 years, really focused on your startup for a few months. That's what it's all about. So to do a mathematical calculation, how do you value that? It's not in the equation. And I think that's the flaw in that thinking. So I also dug up a piece from Paul Graham, who'd founded Y Combinator, which I guess was the, I think it was the first one of these kind of style investing programs. And he'd said, one of the most common emails we get is from people asking if we can help them set up a local clone of Y Combinator, but that just wouldn't work. Seed funding isn't regional, just as big research universities aren't. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Not a very widely known story, but if you go back and look at my blog from when I started Techstars, you know, the first thing I did was send Paul one of those emails. And at that time, Y Combinator, again, had done one class. I think they had done 10 companies. It was a very new thing. And I said, Hey, I, you know, I really want to do this. I love your model. You know, what I want to tweak it a little bit based on, you know, what would work here in Colorado. And, you know, what we got back was a flat rejection. Uh, you know, I was tried to phrase nicely. Or, oh, yeah, uh, it's totally not. Yeah. It was just, you know, we're not interested in that. And, you know, I'd offered to come out and have a meeting and, you know, Paul just clearly in what you just read isn't interested in expanding, you know, geographically beyond where he is. And, you know, obviously his prerogative, but I think he's wrong. It does work elsewhere. I think we've shown that, you know, we've had some success, certainly more than paid for what we're doing in Colorado with the successes we've had. And I think, you know, you can't do it anywhere, but you can do it in any, you know, reasonable startup community. So I think it would work in Seattle. I think it would work in Austin. I think it would work in New York. And, uh, you know, I think we've shown that. So tell me with your program, when someone takes the money, they have to come out to Colorado? They do have to spend the summer in Colorado with us. I think, you know, again, the value being the mentorship, that's what it's all about. And and we do these sessions two or three times a week where we have dinner together and we sort of mentor-led for about half an hour and we talk about a thing, a subject. So it might be how to monetize or go to market strategy or technology session. But then we quickly turn it into a very direct one-on-one conversation with the companies. And the goal of all these sessions that we do with the mentors is to create a real level of engagement with the mentors, not to stand up and teach a class. It's about meeting these people, getting to know them and being in their orbit so that for the rest of your career, as you need help from people like that, you have them in your Rolodex and you really know them at that level. Obviously, they give you a ton of feedback. So tell me though, when, well. when they go here, like, you know, where do they live? Where do they work? Where do they eat? And I've never been to Colorado. Like, uh, what's it like? You should come check it out. You know, Boulder's a small town, not too far from Denver, uh, which is a larger city and is a very uh, laid back community. People are very open door there. Lots of companies are helping each other. It's a very collaborative environment. We have the second largest new tech meetup in the country next to New York, uh, where we get about 400 people every month. And we provide, uh, Techstars provides a space uh, in downtown Boulder, right in the sort of the neatest part of the city. It's about 10,000 square feet, and it's affectionately called the bunker. That's because it's underground, sort of in a basement, and uh, others call it the subterranean party lounge. It's an old health club, and we have uh, locker rooms with hot tubs and all this funny stuff going on. But half of the space, about 5,000 square feet, is coffee shop style, you know, which is where a lot of startups happen. And we try to emulate that and give them just nice cushy lounge chairs to hang out in and couches and very collaborative spaces. The other half of the space is more traditional office space. They're offered that space throughout the summer. They don't have to be there, you know, every day or use it. A lot of them will choose to work out of their apartment or whatever. So it's an option for them. Many of them do choose to work out of there. It works pretty well. And they live there too or? 
Um, no, they don't live. Some of them do live in the bunker, you would think. The funding goes towards them finding housing. So we have interns from the University of Colorado that help them find housing. And we time, generally we time the program with the summer break of the University of Colorado. So there tends to be a lot of housing available that's furnished just for the summer, just at the right times. So we help them find that. They use some of their seed funding on that. And they're at the bunker an awful lot for sessions and a lot of meals together. So so tell me about, let's just talk about last year. How many people were there? How many companies did those people make up? And then kind of, you know, what was the breakdown, like age-wise, gender-wise? For each of the first two years, we did 10 companies. So we've now done 20. In the first year, we had 26, I believe, founders, all male. And they were generally, you know, I think average age was 25, 26, something like mm-hmm. that. We had a 19-year-old and maybe a few 35-ish folks in the first year. So we made a concerted effort in the second year, hired uh, Gwen Bell, who helped us evangelize uh, Techstars to female entrepreneurs, and that worked really well. We ended up in the second year with seven women in the program, and I think the average age went up a little bit. We had a few folks that were older. We saw a little bit higher quality application on average. It's been pretty good in terms of diversity lately. What's the, I guess you only have, it's two years old now. So let's say from the first class, you said 10 companies. What do those 10 companies look like now? From the first 10, uh, there were seven that ultimately did angel investment or venture deals. Two of those companies have since been acquired. One was Social Thing that was acquired by AOL. The other was Intense Debate, which was acquired by uh, Automatic WordPress. Hey, I talked to them um Connected through Pete at uh, Daily Candy with those guys. Okay, uh, sure, yeah. A little while before they were acquired. Yeah. So, you know, there are eight companies left from that class. You know, five or six of those are doing pretty well, still running on their funding. What level were the uh, acquisitions at? Were they like home runs or, you know? I think for the entrepreneurs, they were. You know, again, these were first-time founders. Both of those deals were substantial deals that changed their lives in a pretty major way. I mean, substantial, like, in the millions? Yeah. yeah, sub 10 million type deals. I can, I'm not at liberty to give you exact numbers, but you know, there are both meaningful exits for those companies. Like between two and 10 million. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, for us as small investors, it was positive. It sort of helped pay for the program. Actually, it's more than paid for the program, you know, but then there were angel investors. Of course, I was an angel in one of those deals in the angel round. And so, you know, that was a nice multiplier. That's really, for me, it's somewhat about deal flow. A big part of doing it is really to help, you know, the community around Boulder and have some interesting things going on there. So, you know, a great side effect, for example, of the social thing exit is that AOL's opened a bigger office in Boulder and there are people there working on Bebo now and other things. So that's been great. So if I were your money manager and you were justifying it to me, you'd say it's almost a loss leader maybe for their real angel investing? You know, I think Techstars as a business is sustainable and profitable, you know, so it's not even a loss leader. You know, we're huge fans of the model. I've been promoting it. You know, we always say Techstars is open source. I talk to at least one group a week that wants to do something like this. But yeah, certainly, you know, you need to put in larger dollars if, you know, you want to get a meaningful exit out the other end of it. I think just doing a program where you're investing ten dollars or $15,000 can be sustainable, as we've shown, but it's not going to be a huge business. And so, again, it's it's about, you know, deal flow for larger investments or the people around the program. So let's talk about that ten or fifteen grand. Is it spent just about all on, you know, housing, living expenses, travel, or how much goes to the business? And then, you know, what's it spent on? Very little of it will actually go towards, you know, the business. It's not going to be used to hire employees or anything like that. In fact, we, we generally 
recommend that the founders not hire new people during the summer while they're there. We break Techstars into three phases. The first phase is really stop working on what you're working on and start listening, engage the mentors, and make sure you're working on the right thing. That's the most important thing. The second month tends to be about building a nice prototype and getting some customers using it. third month tends to be about investment. So throughout that whole time, most of the money is probably going towards where they're living, just sustaining their lives personally, uh, rent, food, and things like that. And then, you know, after the program, again, I think they have a built-in seed round if they're good, and that's where they'll be able to actually hire people and add staff and do things like that. And tell me also about the legal work. I know one of the challenges with angel rounds has always been that the legal fees can be quite high and sometimes kind of offset the money that you're taking in. How do you guys handle that? You know, how much are the legal fees just to do that ten or $15,000 investment? It's, a, it's another hidden benefit of Techstars that we have sponsors, Cooley Godward and KKO are two law firms that donate services. So we have all those documents standardized. Do you make them public? We're about to make them public. We're just getting ready to release them. Um, we're kind of cleaning them up and de-identifying some stuff. But we're about to release the whole set of documents on techstars.org on the blog, which include you know bylaws and subscription agreement and resolutions and the whole package. So people can certainly reuse those, but I, I would never recommend using them without a lawyer sort of looking mm-hmm. over it because every case is specific. But you know we've really pretty much eliminated those costs for our startups. The ones that come out and do a venture deal, of course, the venture investors are going to want a different set of documents. So that still gets pretty expensive. But, you know, we've sort of got the $500,000 angel round down pat or, you know, literally, you know, a few thousand dollars in legal review and you're done. And then do those docs generally hold through the next round of like a bigger angel round or? Yeah, they'll hold through, you know, the double down round if there is one. It could be reused if the valuation is not moving around. But generally, yeah, when, again, when the venture investors come in, they always want the thick stack of, of documents that are different. So I think I cut you off when you were finishing describing the first class, but you had the two get acquired. What happened to the other eight? So many of them are companies you might have heard of. And there's a company called Filterbox. It's doing really well. There's a company called Brightkite, which is you know mobile social networking, much like my second startup that just wasn't five years too early. That's doing really well. So, you know, four or five of those companies, again, are, are strong companies that look like they have a real chance to do something interesting. Uh, Ventview is another one. You know, a couple of them are struggling. Uh, one of them is defunct, and one of them basically folded right when they left in the summer. They went back to college. They were still in school, and we learned the lesson that if you're still in school, you may not be totally focused, which is uh, key. So we haven't had founders who are still in college uh, since then. Of course, do you worry that you might miss like the next Mark Zuckerberg? Or? Yeah, you know, that, there's no rule, right? But yeah, yeah. We're, we're a little more cautious of it because that happened. But, uh, you know, we're really excited about that first class. It's clear that overall it's been a positive thing and, you know, I have high hopes for some of the companies that are still out there. And the, the class that just graduated, uh, the 2008 group is, you know, also 10 companies. I think five or six of them did angel deals where in the first year we had seven. So, you know, we're running about 60, 65% getting real investment. And then we had a couple more companies that were just profitable and never took money. So that's always nice too. What do you see the challenges when people take this money? It's kind of, you know, they could do the business without it. They take the money, but obviously you need more money before you can ever start hiring people and really kind of sustain a business unless it, can be bootstrapped. So, you know, is there a challenge that like if you, since you guys are investors, if you don't invest, if they then go around to other people and they say, hey, we graduated tech stars, they say, oh, well, is David investing? And if they say no, isn't that like, oh, well, the guy who knows the company most intimately and is an angel investor isn't putting money in? 
I was very afraid of that in the first year. It's turned out to not be true. You know, that's sort of the poison pill um, thing that, that a lot of people talk about where, you know, if David or Brad or whoever's involved decides I'm not going to invest in company X, is that company essentially dead? We found the answer to be no. There have been plenty of companies that have been funded post-Techstars by independent investors who are doing their own homework and their own diligence that are good companies. And, you know, not every company that comes out of Techstars is a good company, but a lot of them are, we think. And I've personally participated in just a few of the 13 or so that have been funded. So what's an example of a company that came out, you four didn't invest and someone else did? Uh, they're everywhere. I think a, a, an easy example that a lot of people heard of is BrightKite. BrightKite raised over a million dollars, I think about 1.1 million post-Techstars. And I had been in the mobile space. It, it was basically a theme that I wasn't investing in at the time. Mm-hmm. Looking back on that deal, yeah, sure, it's taken off. I should have done it. It's an interesting company. But it's just not something that I personally was interested in. I think professional investors understand that other professional investors, you know, will often invest by theme in the later stages, late being the A round for, mm-hmm. for a, a startup. And, you know, it's not necessarily a poison pill. So there's other examples that are like that. And what do you find is kind of, you know, what do these guys have to accomplish over the summer to be able to justify that angel round? Like where's, you know, I think the bar might may have been changing over the past few years as things have gotten cheaper. Where are you seeing the bar is now? Yeah, they certainly have to have people using the thing, whatever the thing is, whether that's, you know, on-demand software or consumer app. They need to have real customers really banging on it and have a prototype that is meaningful. It doesn't have to be complete. They need to be telling a you know sensible story, and they have, especially today, some sense of how they're ultimately going to drive revenue from this thing. I don't think it's enough anymore with most investors to just say, we're going to build something that people are going to love, and everyone's going to come flock to it, and we'll figure out how to monetize it. That can still be true, and there are still investors who will you know, invest in that, in that way. But especially in angel rounds, you know, I'm seeing just more cautious investors that really want to understand what the revenue model is. I'll still invest in a company that I think is just going to be a big hit and I'm not sure how it's going to make money because I'll primarily focus on the team and have faith that the team will figure that out. But in general, you do need to put more thought into that these days. What are you seeing is kind of, you get to see a lot of these companies now. What are the trends you're seeing in terms of if it's better to have two or three people on the team of the successful ones, like is it like one business guy and one tech guy, or are they both tech guys who've kind of figured it out or, you know, two jacks of all trades versus two specialists? What are you seeing there in the team makeup? It's all over the map, but I, you know, I think the, the sure thing with a web or a software company is you better have at least one true rock star software developer as a founder who's really committed and invested because I've seen a few companies that, you know, lately that have a really good team, but that tech guy's not vested enough and he ends up leaving and taking a $200,000 a year job pretty early on because startups are, you know, not going to pay him that and he's got that opportunity and he, he's not, doesn't feel totally vested in the company. That's very dangerous. So the big lesson that, you know, I've learned watching these 30 or so startups that I've invested in has just been make sure that technologist is a true rock star and make sure he's really a vested partner in the company. Yeah, it's interesting feedback. I actually talked to one entrepreneur who'd contacted me as a listener who is a former Y Combinator entrepreneur where he was the business guy and tech guy ran off to a nice paying job. 
Yeah, that can really hurt because then you're looking for a rock star developer who you're going to pay next to nothing, and that's hard. You know, it's hard to find that person, and they're going to have to pick up what the other person has done. And you know, I've seen it kill the company. Uh, we had that happen with one tech stars company that you know isn't doing great, but is, is surviving, and we'll see how they deal with it. But it, you know, it's really tough. So you know, I get a lot of applications. We get about 400 uh, every year, and the ones that are Two people, I'm the business guy and I found this tech guy and I've given him 2%. It's a little bit of a red flag. I mean, I think, you know, there's no business yet. Really find that partner if you're the, the idea guy. Cause the idea, as you know, isn't what ultimately matters. It's building it and executing it. And, and for that, you need that developer. I have lots of people come to me for advice where they're the business guy and they're like, Oh man, I got this idea. I just need someone to build it. What's your advice to that person? Like, how do you go about finding these rock star tech guys? There's a couple of paths that we recommend, you know, meetups like the one that's here in New York or the one I was mentioning in Colorado, you know, hundreds of people getting together. They're now popping up um, meetups that are specific for this purpose. So founders looking for founders or looking for co-founders. So that's one great way. Um, there's a neat website called Programmer Meet Designer, if I think I have that right, uh, .com that, you know, the story of intense debate is that they met on that website, had never met in person until they got to Techstars. And that's, you know, the company that was ultimately acquired by Automatic and a big success story. So, you know, I've seen that work. But, you know, your personal network is probably the best place to start. Just start reaching out, working in your personal network, going to everyone you know and making them aware of this need. Take it seriously. Make it a priority to find that person. And, you know, it's like anything. If you focus on it, you can get it done. So what are you finding now? Like in your last summer, I guess it was really before at least when people are kind of applying, making their decisions before the economy has gone into meltdown. And I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, how is this going to affect next year, especially given that, you know, your program here is really based on the idea that people are going to find more money after what you give them? We're going to find out. I, you know, all the signs are that it's not going to have a huge impact on us. It has, I'm sure, some impact. It's just, just, in general, less money out there. A lot of angel investors find themselves in the position where their stock portfolio is down 40%, and therefore the percentage of their net worth that they're investing is used up, where if they're investing 10% of it, it's suddenly they're overcommitted in their angel allocation. So that's going to happen. I think VCs are also generally looking at later-stage stuff more than early-stage stuff. But we've seen some positive signs. You know, I think that Two or three of the Texas companies from 2008 were funded, you know, sort of post crash. So you know, I think Igniter uh, is a good example. That Foodsy is a good example. Both, you know, did million dollar rounds post, you know, all the issues in the market and the global market. So, it, you know, good companies are still going to get funded. So I think it's just more important than ever to build a good company. And the macro economy has very little to do with how your startup's going to do. If you build a great company, it doesn't matter when you build it. It's going to work. And a lot of people are saying now that these Web 2.0 companies where you just build them on the web very cheaply, that the the added value is starting to become incremental. I think there's just a, a Business Week cover story about this. And at the same time, uh, I saw a quote from Jeremy Liu saying something to the effect that, you know, Yelp just had to beat City Search, which was this really old school website that wasn't very feature rich. But now you'd have to go and beat Yelp, which, you know, has already kind of taken advantage of all the virility and all the kind of virtues that this kind of new web, web 2.0 offers. So, you know, do you worry that like 
kind of there was this window for Web 2.0. You build this stuff really cheap and just there are going to be fewer and fewer opportunities to make a big impact. I think, you know, consumers have come to expect the Web 2 sort of experience and, you know, you, ha- you have that's sort of the minimum bar, right? I guess we're more focused on is the startup in a, a large market? There's something, you know, the dynamics in that market are changing. Either it's growing or it's shrinking uh, or it's being eliminated and, and replaced by better technology. So you know, I think that's the key for me as an investor is to just make sure that the company is working in a space where there's interesting things going on. And you're going to have to build, if you're working on a consumer product, you're going to have to build something that has the attributes that people will, you know, quote unquote, call Web2. So that's that's kind of how I think about it. So tell me now, what's the timeline for getting in on this next year if someone's listening and they want to do Techstars, what do they do? If you want to do Techstars, uh, applications open January 19th and they close March 21st. So you have a couple months to apply. The application is really, really simple. It's about 15 questions on the website. This year we're adding uh, video submissions. So if you want, you can just submit a video and answer those same questions. You don't have to write anything. You don't have to write I anything. I could be illiterate and I could be a tech star. Uh, exactly. Cavemen could do it. <laughs> so, you know, as long as you answer the questions, I think the video has to be five minutes or less. You can sing and dance or do whatever you want to do, or you can just fill out the traditional application. We also do this thing called tech stars for a day. In early March, I think it's March 3rd this year. So if you apply before then, uh, you'll potentially get an invite to that and come hang out and get to know some of us. We can get to know you better and figure out if it's for you. So we'll probably see four or 500 applications this year. And, you know, we're being a little more flexible on number of companies that we're going to take this year. So it'll be around 10, but uh, we'll do the ones we're excited about. And the program starts in mid-May and runs to mid-August. And just very briefly, do you think, how do you see this area evolving? Like you were saying, there's still lots of people out there interested in doing this and you're meeting with them, you know, I'd say every probably three months, you're seeing a new one of these programs launch, be it, I think there's one in DC, there's several others out there, you know, where do you see this going? Are there going to be 10 of these things working? Could the market support 50? I think the major cities and where their startup activity and where there's a reasonable culture and dynamic for startups to occur, you know, can support a program like this. And I've been talking to people in Europe. I've been talking to people in pretty much any city that, you know, anybody's ever heard of has called me and we've had conversations about how to do this. You know, I think a lot of people are going to try it. A lot of cities are going to try it. I think that's a good thing. The model behind Techstars to me represents a very rare triple win. It's a win for the community you do it in because more interesting stuff is happening there and more talent comes in. It's a win for the investors who are involved because they get to really experience the companies directly before putting larger dollars in. And I'm a big advocate that it's a big win for the entrepreneurs, especially young first-time entrepreneurs who don't have a lot of experience. They can accelerate the growth of their company, the progress of their company, and do in three months what it might otherwise take them five years to figure out. And so, you know, that's a model that works. And the fact that it's sustainable for the people who are putting the money into it Programs like Techstars and Y Combinator have shown that. Sure, I expect to see lots and lots of of programs like this, and I think that's a good thing. I think we're seeing kind of two variations gone now. One is, you know, you could imagine it as it gets more competitive between these programs. People offer bigger dollars, like why not do this and get, you know, 30 grand instead of 15. And then the other way you could, like you'd mentioned at the beginning, I think Darren Herman launched this thing, and there are a few others where people just say, okay, 
you know, it's not about the money. So it'll give you all this stuff and you really only need, you know, one to three grand. So do you see it evolving in either direction? It's about the mentorship. I mean, that's what it is. And the difference in the long term for any company between $15,000, $30,000 or $3,000 is negligible. It's not going to have a large impact. What's going to have a large impact is the feedback, advice, connections, and access to capital that you get early on. And so I think that's what's going to make programs credible is providing a group of people, not just, you know, from their local community, but a nice, you know, national world, worldwide group of mentors who are very credible and who bring real attention to those companies and help them in meaningful ways. If you're not providing that, it doesn't matter if you're doing 3,000, 10,000 or 50,000. It makes no difference. Great. So that answers all my questions. Do you have any closing thoughts to entrepreneurs out there thinking about doing this or otherwise? Just do it. Surround yourself with great people. That's the key. And start working on it. And good things will happen. Well, David, thanks a lot for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's all for our interview with David. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you got as much out of revisiting this interview as I did. And I think it's a reminder that Techstars itself was a startup and just wild to see how even something that seemed successful a couple of years in can just grow and compound and, and go from a few million dollar hits to creating billions and billions of dollars in value. So think about what seeds you're placing today that can pay off many years in the future. If you like this podcast, please give it five stars on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Giving it a good review is the best way to spread the word about this podcast. You can also find me on social media at Gregory on either Twitter or Instagram. Thanks so much for tuning in. Catch you next time.